Welcome back to the Next Frontier podcast, specifically to the Where Stuff Comes From series. Ivan, as we're diving in, I wanted to ask you to introduce yourself a little bit. Who is Ivan Gonick heading into 2022 as we're heading out and closing out of 2021? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your company, and and some of your background, because I know that you were in the Air Force and you have some extensive experience dealing with communications grid, energy grids, these types of things. Yeah, definitely. So uh, kind of who I am, right? So I started out my journey into life by uh, joining the United States Air Force straight out, straight out of high school and got to travel the world, got to learn about all sorts of things, um, focus in communications, long distance communications, uh, radio communications, that kind of stuff. And then as my career transitioned in the Air Force, I became a communications project manager. And I worked on projects small and, and several million dollars to facilitate communications between pilots to people on the ground and, and the interactivity. Um, got started in the solar industry in kind of a very unique roundabout way. Uh, my aunt's boyfriend, uh, she, he was in the solar industry and he said, Hey, I need somebody who speaks Spanish. Do you want to learn about solar and translate for me? And I was like, sure. Why not? Didn't have any commitments, family or anything like that. It's like, why not make use of my time? And it started out just learning about, you know, just translating, right? It wasn't really about anything else. Just say, hey, you know, I've got this skill, speak two languages, put it to use. And as I learned the industry and I learned how people were doing things and why people were doing things, or maybe they don't know why, I was like, man, let's change this industry. There's so much here and so much potential that we can change it and make it into a better industry. So kind of going into 2022 right now, we are actually in South Carolina right now, and we're uh, launching our second office in another state. So our first office is in Phoenix, uh, covering the state of Arizona. We're launching our second office out here in Greenville, South Carolina. And the goal is get this one launched and then progress into Florida, Texas, North Carolina, and Georgia in 22. Thank you for sharing that. So Veteran Solar is not only a, a solar company in the traditional sense that you're necessarily manufacturing solar panels, but you are, so what, explain the business model there. What, what are you actually doing? What are you providing to customers? Um, and then I want to dive into some of your expertise and your deep knowledge base of what the solar supply chain and where solar comes from. Yeah. So as far as, you know, what we're providing customers, Veteran Solar, uh, we're providing customers a turnkey solution to meet their energy needs today but then also 20 years down the road, right? When we design a system, a solar system, we look at it in a holistic approach, right? What is changing legislation-wise? What is changing energy grid-wise? What political and economic factors are coming down the pipeline? Because we want to design a system that's robust. Solar is an investment. It's a huge upfront capital expense, but it's beautiful because it allows you to lock in with today's dollars versus something that might be down the road. And that takes a careful, you know, mindful approach um, I don't remember which Native American nation said it, but the gist of it stuck with me was, you know, don't look at what can impact this generation, but look at what's going to impact, impact 10 generations from now. And that's an approach that we take when we design a system because stuff can change in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Let's make sure that the dynamics and the economics are dialed in to be able to accommodate those changes down the road. So turnkey solar systems. So you come in, you put solar panels on somebody's roof, you invert that power through power electronics that you install and you help them set up for whatever's right for the customer that you're working with. And then you put a battery bank or maybe there's some opportunities where you tie into the grid. How, can you, what, what is that whole 
um, you know, on-premise yeah. supply chain look like? So for, I'll just say Phoenix specifically, right? Every utility handles what's called net metering differently. And it's basically them buying your excess power back or you buying excess power that you need from them. Typically in those situations are it's nighttime, right? Solar, sun's not out, solar's not producing any energy. So what do you do? There's two options. You can either buy that from the grid or you can have it stored on site and then use that energy as you need. So when we design a system, we're looking at the economics of it, right? There's certain advantages in certain places to be grid tied to sell that excess power back to the grid because they need it during the day, right? When Phoenix, it's hot. There's a huge energy demand. The utilities can't meet up with it. They'd love to buy that excess power. In other areas, it doesn't make sense because they don't have those fluctuations in power need. So when we design a system, we look at what that individual's usage is for them in their home, right? We don't do a square footage calculation like a lot of companies do. A lot of companies just say, all right, hey, X amount of square feet, this is how many panels you need more or less. We're looking at your actual usage, your kilowatt hour usage. We go in there and we design a system. We read those rules from the interconnection of the utility because regretfully, in a lot of places in the United States, it is impossible to disconnect your utilities unless you own the home outright. And even then, in some cases, you can't. So we want to make sure that we're conforming to the rules as they are today. And then whatever changes we see might be happening down the pipeline to those rules as far as net metering goes. So in Arizona specifically, they're having those rates locked in for X amount of years. But after 10 years, it can change. So when we design a system, we're designing it to be able to, A, primarily offset 100% of your energy usage today. B, we're designing it to be future-proofed. So we're putting in the inverter systems that can handle batteries very easily. We're using high-quality equipment that can effectively translate that power into a battery. A lot of companies these days are using what are called uh, microinverters. It's a multi-conversion point because you're converting the power from DC energy to AC energy underneath the panel, and then back to DC energy going into the battery, and then back to AC, leaving it back to your home. It's a lot of loss there um, with a microinverter. So we're using technology that doesn't have all that loss. It allows that battery to straight charge DC from the panels for your overproduction and really just having that, that longevity look and also using equipment that's going to last way longer than anything else that's considered a tier one or top tier panel. So let me jump in there for one second. Just backing up, I have a few questions. First and foremost, I'm reading a book right now called Shorting the Grid. Uh, have you had a chance to take a look at this book? I have Mer- not yet. Meredith something. So it's it's all about how the the grid infrastructure in the United States, not necessarily on a phys- physical level, although there's a physical there are physical problems with the U.S. grid, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but on a kind of regulatory and a how how the utility ecosystem is structured, and it's extremely cumbersome. There's a ton of regulatory burden for the consumer who, you know, in, in her book, she just refers to them as rate payers because they're not really consumers because they don't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. They just consume and then pay. Um, and the whole ecosystem is really convoluted. So f- my first question for you is, in your experience, what is your what is your view of how the 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 utility systems either make it easier? For you know, an individual home to plug into the grid to go and contribute energy, uh, you know, not only taking from the utility company but also giving back into the grid. That's number one. And then the second part of that question is: is is it efficient, and is it w- even worth exploring tying back into the grid, or just focusing on what you're able to do for yourself on a local level? And and what what um, what risks does tying into the grid also add into your system, if any at all? Yeah, so as far as that interconnection point to the grid, right, being able to buy from the grid or sell back access to the grid, 
it's pretty easy these days. Um, there's been a lot of legislation at the state levels that are making it basically mandatory that, hey, you have to buy the power back from the utility rate. They don't specify what rate, and that changes, right? It changes by utility, jurisdiction, state. So when you say, um, I'm sorry, when you when you say buy the power back, the consumer has to buy, who's tying into the grid has to buy power from the utility, even if they have solar, or the grid no, has to buy the, from the utility. consumer? Yep. Yeah, the utility has Got to it. buy from the consumer, any excess production. They don't specify what rate that has to be bought back. And so like doing market research here in South Carolina, we're, we're expanding, right? That legislation doesn't also include um, co-op utilities, right? So there's a lot of smaller scale co-op utilities in more rural parts where big commercial grids don't go into. So basically the, for South Carolina, the, the rule is the utility has to have, or if they have over 100,000 customers, then they fall under the state legislation of having to buy that excess energy that a homeowner with solar on the roof sells them. So South Carolina's got some really great sorry, legislation for net metering. And other states don't necessarily have that great legislation in that aspect. So as far as that buyback goes back, it's important to, you know, interconnection is pretty easy. There's legislation nationally now that HOAs, a lot of people, you know, in, in closer to the city and communities have homeowners associations, right? HOAs can't prevent a homeowner in that community from getting solar. That's a national thing now. So that used to be a thing back in 2006, 2007, where that was an issue, where homeowners associations say, no, we don't want that. We don't want that in our neighborhood. Um, and that's changed. So there's been a lot of legislation as of late that has benefited a homeowner or a consumer or a business from being able to, to get solar and also overcoming those hurdles of interconnection um, and being able to sell it back or if they need to buy it back access. And kind of on to the second point, because it kind of ties into the first one, uh, your second question was, does it make sense? It does. Battery technology these days is still expensive and it's still not as efficient as I would like to see it. Efficient along what access, like with what metric? I know that you're getting into that, but. Yeah, yeah. So efficiency in terms of longevity of the battery. Most batteries these days are going to last, you know, seven to maybe 12, 15 years, right? If you're pushing it. Our solar systems are 25 years and they're still producing 92%. Just to be explicit, because this is the detail that I, I'm really hoping to draw out as I'm building up this this podcast. But when you say they'll only last for seven to ten years, what happens? Do they just spontaneously combust so, and then everyone you know burns up in flames, so, or is there another failure? Yeah, yeah. so so you guys have you know everyone's got a phone, right? Everyone's got an mm-hmm. iPhone or Android or whatever, right? So you, you look at it and you say, all right, hey, I've had this phone for a year and a half. Well, it's only now charging at seventy percent, or it might even show hundred percent, depending on how they've got software tweaking. But it drains really fast. It's not lasting, you know, as long as it used to. That's what I mean as far as that name nameplate capacity. It was it lasting to from what it was designed to to last. How much energy is actually being able to be stored in these batteries? And that's one of the big issues with battery technology today in the solar industry is because of that fact that batteries don't last. Right? We have if you're using it for, for your home, you're doing a discharge and recharge at least once a day, if not multiple times a day. We charge our phones maybe once a day, maybe twice a day. This is a home that's running off of this battery that's very similar to the battery in the phone, but it's discharging maybe multiple times a day, right? Maybe, you know, it's cloudy and it's using that battery. Bam, that's one. At nighttime, it's another. Or let's just say it's set up to handle peak demand. So your solar output isn't high enough, but your home energy needs are higher. And it's going to start using the battery then at that point too. So there's multiple recharge and discharge cycles in in a solar battery for a home. And... They're not rated to handle it. I mean, current tech right now, 
they're guaranteeing 65% at year 10 from what year one battery is. Now, sure, that's tremendous. We don't expect the cell phone to last 10 years or cell phone battery to last 10 years. But when panels are producing 92% of their rated capacity at year 25, batteries have a lot of catching up to do. And that's, that's why having that grid tie capability is great, especially if it makes sense financially from the how much they're paying you to buy that excess energy back, or if they're giving you just one credit for one credit. So if you put in a lot of power, they'll give you a lot of power, um, depending on how it's structured in that, in that municipality and that, in that state. Um, and is, so, that, is that because when you're tied into the grid, you're, you're taking less, you're using less of the cycle life of the battery. So you're, you're doing less poles of energy from the battery rather than you're pulling from the grid when you're, when possible. Correct. Yep. So, so, so the, the longevity of a battery is not calculated in years necessarily is calculated in how many cycles of discharge and charging you're, you're, uh, correct, you're going yeah. through. Okay. Now, as far as warranty purposes for batteries, all battery manufacturers say, hey, it's at year 10, we're guaranteeing you it's going to have 70% of life, right? Because then, but they're basing it off of average consumer discharge and recharge cycles. The beauty of it is this too, right? So let's just say your solar system is producing a lot of power. It's a really great day. And you're not grid tied and you've got two batteries and they're fully charged. Well, what happens at that point if you're not grid tied? That energy doesn't have anywhere to go. So the solar system will shut down until the batteries drop to a low enough level to be able to charge it. You can't, you can't have them running without an outlet for that excess energy. So having that grid tie with the battery and a solar system is beneficial too, because you're still able to maintain full energy production of that system. Because if it's one o'clock in the afternoon and your batteries are charged and your energy usage is very minimal at the home, the system will shut down because it doesn't have a place to put that energy. So when you say a place to put that energy, sunlight's coming into the solar panels, and we know, you know, from the laws of thermodynamics that energy in needs to equal energy out, either energy out through electricity or electricity plus heat or electricity plus heat plus you know chemical energy stored in the battery. So does the energy from the how what does that energy chain look like? It goes into the solar panel and then it goes to the battery and then it goes to your appliances or it goes into the into the solar panel, goes to your appliances and any excess goes to the battery. How does that transition yeah, and so that transfer, transfer work. Energy flow will go from panels. Now with the systems we use, we have what are called optimizers underneath each panel because, so they developed, I guess, let me get into the history of inverters for solar, right? Cause it ties into it a little bit. Traditional string inverters, they were designed years and years ago and they worked, but they had a problem. One panel broke or if there was shade or whatever was causing an issue with one single panel. That entire productivity for that entire string or that chain would drop to match whatever the, the highest output was. So if it was 50% on one panel, all of it would drop down. So then they designed what are called microinverters, which basically an inverter for solar converts that DC energy to AC energy. And it was a big box on the side of the house. They made it small at a, at a panel per panel level. That panel per panel level allowed that problem to be solved. Because now instead of it going into the long string, each panel was converting its own energy. Problem with that is obviously batteries. You don't want to have to reconvert multiple times to store in a battery. So then these optimizers were designed. And these optimizers, they allow the panels to be kind of smart into the way that they say, all right, hey, panel A is producing 100%. Panel B is producing 100%. Panel C is producing 80%. Well, we're going to ignore that drop. We'll let use all of that power all three of those panels, but we're not going to limit the panels of the two. Then it'll feed into the inverter. Now, once it's at the inverter, if there is 
a battery that's hooked up that needs to get charged, that DC energy goes into the battery. If the load of the home isn't stronger or isn't larger, right? So let's just say the home is using, we'll do one to a hundred or zero to a hundred, right? Let's see the home is using 90% of the generation capacity for the solar system. 10% of that energy, which is the excess, will then go into the batteries. And the home will still continue to use what's being produced on the roof. Now, let's say the batteries are fully charged. The home is still using 90%. In a grid tie situation, then it sends that 10% excess off to the grid to get sold at, at that rate or credited at a net metering rate. Flip side of it, too, is let's just say there's more energy need than what the solar system is producing. Let's say the home is using 110% of what the solar system can produce on the roof. If the batteries are charged fully, that extra 10% can come from the battery and then power the home. And if, let's say, the batteries are depleted, then that extra 10% can come from the grid and power the home. Great. Thank you so much for breaking down the energy balance there. I think it's really important. A lot of times we think about solar, we talk about um, solar as this esoteric technology that people either like or they don't like, and we don't really think about what does the energy math look like and from a first principles perspective. So thank you very much for breaking that down. I appreciate it. Talk to me about what happens when the grid, when the grid is no longer available though. So what does a, what does a home do if there is no grid to back it up and there's not enough wattage coming out of the solar panels? Yeah. So in a strictly grid tied situation for solar, no batteries, no transfer switch, which is what the majority of residential and commercial solar is. If is that the true? grid goes down, it is, yeah. So a lot of companies aren't designing their systems to be able to support if the grid is down. And what happens is the inverter realizes that there's no incoming power and it shuts off the production. So it won't allow any of that transfer from DC to AC to happen because there's no transfer switch to disconnect that production from going into the grid. So, and it's a safety thing. It's a safety thing that in case there's alignment down the road, you know, working on a power line, so it was a storm or something like that that excess energy doesn't go down that line and, and hurt them. It's there for a safety reason. But if the grid goes down and you don't have a transfer switch, it doesn't matter if you've got panels on your roof, you've got no power. So the way we design systems is we're using, it's a piece of technology called an energy hub coupled with a transfer switch. And what happens is with that energy hub and that transfer switch and a battery, if the grid ever goes down, that transfer switch can say, oh, hey, if there's no power coming in from the grid, Let's shut off any excess power we send out. At that point, you can use the energy that your solar system is producing to power your home. Now, if you go over capacity, then you're going to have basically a brownout in your own home. If you've got batteries, sure, it can handle and shuffle that load. And then at the same time, if you have you know, nighttime usage in the grids out, say multiple days, but you've got a robust enough battery system and the usage isn't super high during the day, you can recharge those batteries at night and then you'll have you know 24-hour coverage yourself with what you're generating and what you're storing and what you're using. So that's, that's kind of an, if you're, if you're, if you're wise with your energy balance, like if you, if you're, if you get forethought to it, you can't just go suck an infinite amount of energy from out of these panels and out of the battery, because it has to come from somewhere that comes back to the worst stuff comes from thing. If someone's not burning coal at your power plant, there's no grid energy. If the sun's not shining in your panels uh, and your battery is not charged, there's no, there's no, you know, off grid solar energy. So just being cognizant and developing that consciousness as a consumer, as a business owner of what does your energy balance look like and how, how can, um, you know, if you can no longer depend on the grid, how can the systems that you have in place support the minimal operations that you need to continue to sustain and be resilient throughout that, uh, that period of time? Yeah. And I mean, there's tons of neat technologies that are just emerging. There's a, a company that just 
I just ran across that's developing a smart breaker for your home or for whatever. And it's a 200 amp, you know, residential breaker box. And it can actually tell you down to the circuit level what production is. But let's just say you are 100% reliant on battery. Instead of having dedicated loads already designed, hey, you know, I want my refrigerator to run and my fans to run and my AC to run, you can actually on the fly change what circuit breakers are actually receiving battery power. So you've got an electric car that you need charged. So you can shut everything else down and just charge the electric car. Or you just want the AC to run to be able to conserve that battery stored energy and, and drag it out longer. You can shut everything else down in the home and just run that. So it's, it's a really neat piece of technology I just came across last week. So I'm actually uh, going to be implementing it into a, a new home build that, that we're completing um, just because I thought it was just phenomenal. I was like, wow, it's great. And there's other technology like that by uh, Wisner and uh, Square D that allows you to see relatively circuit level what your usage is so that you can be cognizant of it too, of what you're consuming from what you produced. It makes it easy these days. It's beautiful. So one of the things that have come up in our conversations is I don't, I don't particularly um, think that the conversation when it comes to solar, making it fully climate focused um, and green focused, is the most effective way to market the technology. And I was struck by how what you got the approach that you guys take when it comes to marketing it as e- true energy independence for the individual um, using the technology that's available today. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on on how solar really enables folks to to establish their independence, even if it's imperfect, but it allows you to establish your independence right now and know where at least some of your stuff is coming from in a resilient and a reliable way. Yeah, so typically, and just let's just get it from the financial aspect first, right? Energy rates in the United States can vary, but the national average is about a 3% increase, 3, 3% in cost year over year. Some jurisdictions, some utilities, last year they saw as high as 8%. Year prior might have been two, but the year before that was ten, right? So, from a financial aspect, you've got a truly variable, unpredictable expense that you have. You're not going to not have it. You will have it, right? You're not going to unless you're living in a you know a, a log cabin in Montana up in the woods. You're going to be using electricity, right? So, from a financial aspect, it's just such a fluctuating bill, and it goes up year after year after year. Nationally, three percent. So. The financial benefits of solar are this. You're using today's dollars, not having to worry about A, inflation, B, rising utility rates for rising costs. As some of these coal power plants come offline or they reach end of life, costs are going up because that energy is having to be received from somewhere. So, And as the grid ages, utilities are having to upgrade and replace and repair the grid. Um, you know, it's National average age for the utility large-scale grid is 60 years old in the United States. We're coming to the end of life. We're already past the end of life in some aspects. And there's going to be these costs for these utilities to do that. And they're going to pass them on to the consumer. They're not just going to say, oh, we got to pay this. we got to do it. It goes to the consumer at the end of the day. So this is a fixed thing that you're going to have. That's the first thing. And you can hedge in. Now, the average homeowner who goes solar, or focus on homeowners on this aspect, the average homeowner who goes solar and offsets 100% of their energy usage, right? Typically, over a 25-year spread, can save anywhere between sixty dollars and $100,000 if they were to do nothing. That's just from looking at what a 3% increase is going to be year over year. That's just 3%, right? Play conservative with numbers. Quick, even quick a 1% question. increase. Is, yeah. Is that is that geographic dependent? So I'm imagining that that is much higher in Arizona relative so, to New Jersey or Maine. 
so three percent is the national average. Arizona is around four and a half, five percent. So it was geographic, but when we give an estimation or we sit down with the homeowner and we say, hey, what is what is this? We show them what the national average is, 3%. We show them what the state average is for that area's average. And then we show them 1%, right? Just assuming just a 1% increase in cost, right? And that, that, like I said, that doesn't even factor in inflation costs for the dollar. What your, can your dollar buy? This is just a straight, hey, this is what it, it's going to increase year over year. So we look at it on those three, those three platforms, but we always play with the conservative 1%. 1% is pretty much a guaranteed increase every single year. It's 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 going to happen. And that's them saving, you know, 60 to $100,000 in the 25-year spread versus just paying the utility, right? Not generating their own energy. The second half of it is the ability to generate your own energy is a beautiful thing, right? A, you're already not locked into rising rate costs and rising costs and stuff like that. You've got a generation capacity on your home to power all of your usage, all your needs. You're relatively independent, especially if the system's designed right. Who cares if the grid goes down? Who cares if there's a massive winter storm in Texas and it shuts the grid down for two years or two weeks, right? You have that capacity to produce your own energy and you're fine. Your AC's on, your heat's on, you're living life and you're good to go. You don't have to worry about anything else that's going on around, around you in the community, outside world, whatever. Um, and that's, that's an important thing. You know, people get generators for that very reason. Generators only provide value when there's an emergency and it's just a cost and it's got maintenance and everything else. Solar provides you a financial benefit from the financial standpoint of rising rates, but then you've got that safeguard when you've got it with batteries and, and proper technology that if there is an emergency situation where the grid goes down or whatever the case may be, you're producing your own power. You're good to go. You don't have to worry about anything else that's happening because you have what you need. If it was designed right, you do have what you need. Um, so those are the, like the two really big things for independence. The flip side of it too is, you know, we, we talked about it in a, our conversation earlier. Was uh, there's a spot over over the middle of the United States that if a, an electromagnetic pulse were to go off, it would pretty much destroy the U.S. grid. Um, just how it's how it spreads out and. That's a scary thought when it, one spot could destroy the entire U.S. grid, and it would take anywhere between a year and a half to four years for the grid to return back to what it was prior to the event. That's a long time to be without power. Um, and, and stuff happens, right? People get frustrated. I mean, we look at what happened in Katrina. We look at the hurricanes that are happening now. That's a couple of days, and society crumbles when they don't have access to, you know, Grocery stores because there's no food storage capacity because you know grocery stores is down, um, and and basic you know needs air conditioning whatever the case may be, having that independence that freedom to generate your own power whenever, that's a, a truly kind of liberating thing aside from the economics aside from what the environmental benefits can be, just being able to be independent in your energy production that's a that's a tremendous thing. So we'll we'll come back to the uh, to some of the grid issues and you know grid resiliency in a in a in a hot second here, um, I just wanted to to dive into one of the points that you made about about you know on a state by state basis changing the the discount rates that you assign or the inflation rates that you assign to energy prices. Um, one of the things when when I think about solar that I view as kind of a a reason why it's not necessarily a panacea to all of our energy problems, and I'd love for you to to help me frame this. Um, all of our local energy problems is because if I'm in I'm in New Jersey and I live in the middle of a forest and there's a bunch of tree coverage and I don't have a lot of direct sunlight, 
it doesn't seem like I'm like I'm going to have the same return that I would if I was in the desert in California. So how do you how do you frame that? Is that really an issue? Um, and what are some of the the ways that you know we can think through solutions in that situation in that scenario for for kind of local local energy independence? So this has been happening in Europe for the past couple of years, and it's basically like microgrids that are being designed around you know a small community or a small town, right? And, and if you've ever traveled in Europe, a small town can mean ten people, right? And that's that's the town, or it can mean a hundred people, right? But they're making it so that that community has its own grid. And your neighbors can supply your energy if your system's not producing efficiently or your needs are higher. A microgrid perspective in the United States would be a tremendous thing. Now, granted, the United States is a massive country land-wise. You know, if we look at it in comparison to, I don't know, other countries, right? I mean, the state of Texas is massive, massive on its own, right? So having that microgrid capacity, and I'll kind of get into your point with New Jersey. Solar actually produces better when it's not hot outside. Um, there's these things called temperature coefficients for the how well the system can produce, right, in layman's terms, based off of X temperature, X ambient temperature and surface temperature. There hits that point that production starts decreasing if it's too hot. So New Jersey is actually a great state for solar because for the most part, the temperature stays, you know, under 125, 130 degrees outside. And it doesn't, I mean, it gets cold, but it doesn't get like Alaska tundra or, or the Arctic tundra cold. Um, the things with, with, Areas like that that have got a lot of trees, that's something that we're facing here in South Carolina in our expansion. You might have to cut some trees if you want it on the roof or place the system a little bit further away and put it on a ground-mounted structure, whether it's a covered parking area or just on the ground, you know, on, on an array in a rack like that, and then pipe it to the home. Or if there's a, you know, a cluster of homes out there in, in the woods and the mountains or whatever, you can do the same thing. You can build one bigger system for five or six homes. And feed it that way to take advantage, you know, to not have to cut down the trees for that area, but also still be able to get that power there. And that's something that happens in a lot of remote locations is people turn to solar because of that reason, because utility doesn't want to drop a line down there, or it's too expensive to run a, a utility line out there or too remote. So um, I'm, I'm framing this for one second. So the the essence of what you're what you're describing is that solar, when deployed efficiently, it's better to have some capacity, even if it's imperfect with tree, with some tree coverage that you can modify, you can cut down some trees to get better sun exposure. It's better to have some sort of local energy production capacity that allows you to be self-reliant and resilient, uh, even if it's imperfect. And there isn't necessarily a better solution right now, although I'd love to hear what you think are some potential alternatives, whether it be wind or backyard geothermal, or if you live on a, on a, on a river and you can do some sort of local hydro electric. But it's better to have some sort of local energy infrastructure, and solar right now is the best way to do that uh, than to have nothing and to have it be have have that capacity not be tied to the grid, rather than have it be only dependent on the grid. If that's a yeah. that's what I'm kind of getting as a synopsis from from our the past few minutes that's, of our conversation. That's that's how I would you know that's is really how I would frame it because now I love hydroelectric, and if you live near a great flowing water stream, then by all means, that's going to flow 24-7. Once we have some major droughts, that's going to flow 24-7 and it's going to generate capacity for you. Now, will it generate enough of your need? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but if you're living next to a, you know, a good flowing river and you can tap into it, you've got access to it to be able to do a, a small hydroelectric production, by all means, I would, I would call that number one. Wind, wind's okay, but winds change. This can be days without wind. It's very reliant upon, you know, 
the wind. Um, and there's a saying I'm trying to come to mind right now, but it's not coming to me. The wind's not really a great one to tap into unless you've got, you know, certain areas where you know it's just constantly going, but that's not most people's homes, right? Most people don't want to live in a place that's got 90 mile an hour winds. Um, so I would say hydro would be first, solar would be second, um, just because it's a lot easier to install. I love geothermal too, ge geoelectric production. Problem is it's very terrain specific. There is it's a system that's got to get installed in a certain place and it's got to be done right. It's got to have, you got to have enough a ground coverage. The terrain has to match, right? It can't be too rocky. It can't be, you know, too, it's got to be a perfect condition terrain. And that's not always the case, depending on where you're at. If it is, by all means, go for it. If it's not, it's not going to work out. So that's why solar is kind of in the position where it works great for majority of people, unless you have that perfect terrain to be able to do a, you know, a geoelectric or you've got that running stream to be able to do, you know, a hydro system. Either one of those two are great options, but they're not a great option for the majority of people who are in those situations. And then kind of tying it into being able to produce some energy. If you can even produce a portion of your energy usage, it makes sense because now you've got a portion of your energy usage that you know you can produce. So, you know, we're, we're a country of excess. We like like we want, we want it when we want it. But if something were to ever happen, an emergency were to ever happen, we could, you know, scale down to meet whatever that energy production is. Let's say, you know what, I know that I need my refrigerator work and I want to be able to run my stove now and then and maybe my hot water heater and maybe some living room fans or something like that, right? Even if you only generate a small capacity of your energy, you can do that stuff. And, and that's the benefit of having an alternative form of energy where you live because if the grid goes down and you can do something like that you're in a much better position as far as having to worry about outside outside factors great thank you for clarifying that and and one more uh note i'd like your i'd love your input on is talk to me about solar versus generator right so you mentioned you touched on it briefly but from my perspective we had this massive colonial pipeline hack on the east coast about uh six months ago now, no, a little bit short of that, maybe four and a half months ago in May of 2021. And during that pipeline hack, there was just no natural gas flow into some parts of the, of the East coast of the United States. And I imagine that if you have a natural gas generator, when that happens, you're not in the best position because you're not going to have any gas coming into your generator after some amount of time. So can you give me your take on, on the generator versus solar conversation? I mean, generators have been around for, for years, right? They've been around for 50, 60 years. The motor's been around for over 100 years, right? To be able to generate some type of energy. Um, generators are great, but they're still reliant on outside factors. You're reliant on, I need fuel for it. Now, if you're an industrious individual and you've got a diesel generator, you can generate your own biodiesel, right? You can plant plant corn and generate your own biodiesel or you can use, you know, cooking grease or whatever and, and refine it to be able to power your generator. Great. That's not most people. And so, and they've got different fuels for generators, right? They've got generators that are tri-fueled. They can do propane, natural gas, diesel, or gas, right? They can handle a variety of different, different fuel inputs and you can change it on the fly. That's great, but you're still having to bring something in versus something that's there locally, right? So, and then the other aspect is maintenance generators need to be ran they're a motor you need to do oil changes on it you need to do spark plugs you need to do all sorts of other stuff to it to make sure that it is ready when you need it with solar or you know hydroelectric or even you know geoelectric capabilities 
there's not really a whole lot of maintenance to it. With hydro, there's a little bit because there's some moving parts. Obviously, with GO2, there's a little bit of moving parts. But solar, there's not really any moving parts to it, right? You want to make sure that the panels are clean. But honestly, if you notice that there's you know a lot of dust, dirt, debris, or whatever the top, your garden knows. Spray it down, and it's going to be good to go. Um, Maintenance-wise, that's, that's really the extent of it, unless there's a major you know manufacturing issue or something like that that goes down, or there was damage to it through you know whatever the case may be, meteorite, whatever. Um, that's the benefit of of solar versus a generator because there is a no outside factors. As long as the sun's out, as long as you're able to get sunlight, you're going to produce energy, um, and you don't have to worry about you know the gas pipelines being shut down or, or gas shortages or anything like that and then from the maintenance aspect it's a lot less maintenance than you would have to do on a generator so that thank you for reframing that um and when you when you you know it's, it's interesting we've talked about cost briefly but a lot of these a lot of these conversations when you reframe it from a localism and independence perspective cost is still important but it's also okay what's the most effective solution for what i am willing to do with like you said my my level of of industriousness um to you know kind of buy an insurance policy um, well, you know, well let me, let me tie it scenario. into cost too. Generators are expensive, right? For a whole home generator, you're looking at on a low end, $7,000 to high end, $20,000, $25,000. You can get a pretty robust solar system for $25,000 and it works for you full time. Whereas a generator is literally just there for an emergency. Plus you've got maintenance. So that's the, just from on, on a cost perspective too. That's, that's the other point of view on it too. Cool. Thank you for, for clarifying that. So there's two more, I mean, there's a lot more uh, pathways that we can take this conversation, but there's two that I definitely want to hit on. The first is kind of grid reliability and resiliency. You mentioned uh, that spot over Topanga, Kansas, that scares the bejesus out of me every time we talk about it. Uh, and then the, the, the conversation around what is the actual supply chain for where these panels come from and where these battery systems come from. And you know, after year seven, when your battery doesn't work anymore, what do we do with it and where does it go? So I'll let, I'll leave it up to you. Which which one of these do you want to hit first? Which is um which seems like a more natural panels, way for, place for us to go first. into. Let's hit the panels first. That's the first step, anyways. Um, you know, panel sourcing can come from as far as like a already manufactured product, right? You've Sorry, before panel. before we get into that, before we get into that, what is in a solar panel? So you mentioned something about the material science about how when it's too hot out or too cold out, it doesn't produce super effectively. So let's let's maybe start at start at ground zero and start at the the atoms that are coming in and out of the ground. I know that the specific like compositions probably outside of both of our wheelhouses uh, without pulling up Wikipedia, but you're the, at a high you're level, the material scientist. <laughs> you're the material scientist. I am. I am. Um, um, so for the most part is silicon, right? That's, that's the largest component of them. Um, there used to be a lot of lead. Most good manufacturers these days are not using lead anymore. Uh, cause that was an environmental concern. Hey, I'm putting this thing that's supposed to be green for the environment and it's got a bunch of lead in it. And then what happens when it's hit the end of its life, we're just dumping it somewhere and that lead's leaching out into the groundwater or whatever. So most good manufacturers are no longer using um, lead. Uh, there's gold, there's silver, there's some copper in it, but for the most part, and there's aluminum. Those are kind of like the really big portions of it as far as what's actually in a panel. And I'm sure there's dozens of small little pieces there, but as far as what's incorporated majority of it, you got aluminum for the frame, you've got a tempered glass, and then you've got silicon for the actual cells 
and then what connects those, whether it's gold or silver for that, those connecting elements and those soldering elements. That's the majority of what's in a panel. So basically, a solar panel is a semiconductor that is not really a semiconductor. It's a different type of electronic device that uses kind of the weird physics of silicon. And then there's maybe a little bit of indium and tin and, and other uh, more esoteric materials in there. And all these things come together with some really nifty material science and electrical engineering to create this material that light comes into it and electricity comes out. And we will leave the full explanation of that for maybe a uh, a YouTube explainer video that I'll put into the into the show notes section of this. Okay, thank you for breaking that yeah. down. So there's so, so there's all these kind of base commodity metals, and then there's a few more esoteric things that go into this. Um, I know that there's not a whole lot of rare earth elements, and not really any lithium in the solar panels themselves. Some a little some esoteric metals, um, and then when we get to the battery conversation, we'll maybe do the same thing for the batteries. Okay, so back to you with panels and where they come from. So there's panel manufacturing capacities all across the world. A large producer of solar panels is China, but China is also a large producer of a majority of consumer goods in, in the world. I'm not a fan of Chinese solar panels for a couple of reasons, but the first is they hit the bare minimum requirements to be classified as what's called a tier one panel, right? Banks will finance it because they know it's durable and credible. Most Chinese solar panels out there, Chinese manufactured solar panels out there, now, at year 25, they're only producing anywhere between 80 and 82% of what they produce tier one. On the flip side of it, the high end of a tier one panel, these are panels that manufactured in Germany, Singapore, um, and in parts of the United States. They're producing 92 to 94% of the power at year 25 versus year one. So, you know, versus a, a 20% drop, you've got a 6 to 8% drop in power capacity at year 25. So that's the first thing to that is credibility to longevity, right? It's going to last way longer because the degradation for power production is much less. So panels we use, they're manufactured in Singapore. They're in an entirely robotic facility. How the human hand touches them during the entire production process. And, you know, like, like you said, right, the materials that are right, there's not a whole lot of super rare earths. I mean, there's small portions of it, but it's not majority, right, stuff we've got to worry about um, from a material aspect of sourcing and, you know, geopolitical conflict and stuff like that. It's stuff that can usually be found pretty much anywhere in the world for the most part. So that's why we use the panels we use because they are not Chinese manufactured, but also because they fall on the high end of the tier one spectrum as far as durability, longevity and what they can actually do. They've got the lowest temperature coefficients, they've got the lowest degradation coefficients, and, and they just are much better produced panel. Chinese, they do the job, but they're not as good and they're not going to last as long. And that leads to waste down the road. A lot of Chinese panels are still using lead too. Majority of them aren't, but a good portion of them are still using lead too. And that's not good for the environment. And if we're going to at least have some facet of, hey, we're doing this for the environment, let's do something true about it. Right. So that, so on the, on the, well, I'll stay on the panels for a second. What's the, what, what is the, what are the efforts in the United States to manufacture solar panels in the United States? What, do, what does that look like? Uh, can you break down that ecosystem? You mentioned that you guys source from Singapore and Singapore has really high quality um, made with lots of cool robotics, uh, high quality solar panels. What does the United States flip side of that look like? So the United States is really just kind of getting into it. So LG, which is not an American company, they manufacture in Georgia. LG, as far as like, as far as American manufacturing goes, they're the best. Now there's American companies that have started getting into the manufacturing process for solar panels in the past five to ten years, 
they're not there yet because they don't have they haven't developed their own versions of the technology that has that longevity and that capacity and that lifespan that the high end of tier ones do. And the costs right now, because they're still really, you know, five years, 10 years in in R&D, they're still really in the R&D phase, right? Yeah, they're producing and they're pushing out an active product with the design that's stable, but they're not there yet. Um, so, you know, there's a couple of companies, there's Texas Solar, which produces in Texas, there's a couple of the companies in Georgia that produce panels. They're there, they're producing, but as far as technology-wise, they're still five to 10, maybe 20 years behind as far as design technology goes. If we were to just look at a strictly American-owned, American-manufactured company, and are the lead times for these things uh, are they are they a long time? Are they more commoditized? Where you know you put an order in and there's fifty different fifty different ways that you can go buy these, or or is it more you need to have relationships with the suppliers in a, in an intimate way, and only if you have good relationships will will you get the the panels delivered in a timely fashion, especially given the kind of COVID supply chain constraints. Yeah, it's kind of a hybrid between the two, right? If you're wanting tier one panels, you're going to be getting them from a, a, a distributor that's you know based somewhere in the United States, just five or six different distributors across the country, some smaller ones as far as the big ones go. And you're going to want that relationship with them because they're going to be buying them straight from the manufacturer or even you might be getting it straight from the manufacturer if, if the capacity is there, right? If you're using enough of this equipment, you can have that relationship direct with manufacturer. Um, you know, just regular homeowner, you're not going to be able to get this equipment just straight off the shelf, right? You're not going to go down to Lowe's and pick up high quality tier one equipment. You can get it from your distributor, you know, if you wanted to, but then that lead time is going to be much larger because you're not a business customer at that point. You're just somebody who wants five panels versus somebody who's ordering, you know, 2000 panels. Um, as far as lead time goes with COVID, we really haven't experienced any shortages. Um, and that's partially probably because of the panels that we use. They're manufactured entirely by robots. The actual manufacturing process that hasn't been hampered by COVID. Now, sure, there's been shipping issues and stuff like that, but as far as the actual production of said product, we haven't had any issues with it. Okay, cool. So let's get into the end of life. So panels are manufactured in Singapore. They make their way to the United States through a distributor. You to work with your distributor to buy bulk buy these panels that you're going to then go sell and distribute to your customers. Customers can't really go off the shelf buy these things like they could an LED light bulb at Lowe's. You. You come in, you install the panel, it's 25 years passes, or maybe let's say 18 years passes, and the panels are now at the end of their life, and the consumer needs to swap them out, or you need to swap them out for your consumer. What happens? So that is the beauty of the panels that we're using. Because they have such a high longevity, and they've got such a low degradation rate, right? Degradation meaning loss of power year over year. At year 25, these panels are producing 92% of the power that they produced year one, right? So an 8% drop. 8% isn't a huge drop when you look at it in terms of how often are you going to replace your air conditioning unit on your home? Average homeowner in America replaces it every 10 years. How often are you going to replace a refrigerator or a TV, right? Refrigerators get replaced every six to seven years in the United States. TVs get replaced every three. That technology uses less and less energy every single time you replace it. So that 8% drop in power that from was year one, realistically, as far as what your usage is, might only be 2%. That's the first aspect. Second aspect is we never design a system to only offset 100% of your need. We design it, our sweet spot is between 105 to 115%, right? Based off of what the consumer tells us, hey, yeah, I'm going to get an electric car in the future. All right, we'll bump it up a little bit higher. So the capacity to generate should still well be at year 25, 
100% of what their need is and what their usage is. So these panels will continue to produce, and that degradation rate stays consistent, right? Realistically, these panels, we're going to have lifespan at year 40 or year 50 even that's still viable. Panels are only losing 0.25% of their energy production year over year. Right? It's such a minuscule amount of power loss that when you're replacing appliances in your home or maybe they, you finally upgraded to LEDs, that power drop isn't dramatic, right? So, but let's just say our truly end of life, right? They're done for, they're not producing any more power. There is a recycling facility here in the United States. Um, it's in Georgia as well. It's near, it's t- coupled with the LG manufacturing uh, facility down there. And they are basically taking out the major components of the system, aluminum, the silicon and stuff, and being able to reuse it. They're, you know, aluminum, they can reuse it. They re, you know, you reprocess it and then now it's ready to go again and it's reformed into whatever capacity is needed for, right? Um, we've been recycling aluminum for ever here in the United States, right? And you can drive down the road and you see the aluminum recycling cans for soda cans, right? Aluminum is one of those things we've got a great capacity to do. Same thing with silicon, right? They can get, you know, broken down the gold and stuff. There is an extraction process to pull out those precious metals from any any item, right? Your laptop, your cell phone, whatever, pull that those precious metals out. But so there is recycling capability here in the US. If you're using a good quality product though, it's not something that you're really gonna have to concern yourself about for 30 to 40 to 50 years, depending on the product you're using. And during that recycling process, is it how expensive is it? And does it do the economics work out to make it a viable solution for what to do with these things? I know that right now it's not a conversation, but in 30 years from now, when uh, when we need to be worried about recycling a lot of these systems that will at that point be legacy systems, are we just building ourselves another landfill problem where we're going to have landfills full of full of full of uh, um, you know photovoltaic cells? Yeah, so you know the United States has had solar not mainstream, but it's been popular enough, you know, as far back as the late eighties, early nineties, right? These systems obviously aren't designed the way they are today. They're not as long living as they are today. These systems are coming offline now and they are being recycled. And the economics are around is this, you know, sure there's a cost to remove the system, but usually somebody's removing an old system and replacing it with a new one. They're going to be replacing it with a new one, right? They're they bought in, they see how it works. They see it works great. They want a new system. So the cost there is partially offset, right? If you got that equipment there already, some of that equipment can stay the same. The mounting hardware and that kind of stuff can stay the same. New panels can get put on top. The conduit and the wire runs, some of that can stay the same too. So then just the panels are getting taken off the roof. Well, crews there to take it off, they get sent to a recycling facility. That aluminum cost and stuff like that, as we all know in COVID, metal costs have gone up. Um, you know, Raw good costs have gone up. And so there's, there's that, Hey, we can get this back. We basically got this metal for free. Let's reprocess it. And now it's good to go. So as far as cost goes, um, it's advantageous to recycle it, uh, from, from an economic standpoint for these manufacturers. So it's, so it's high margin enough that it makes sense to close this, this supply chain loops. One of the thing, one of the problems you see with something like computer hard drives is it's not really that high mark. It's not high margin enough for it to make sense, at least until recently, to go and recycle the components that are that are sitting inside of that computer hard drive, so you just have landfills that are yeah. filling up with old, you know, gold mines just sitting right under our feet that we think is uh, that we perceive as garbage dumps. So I know that we are bumping up on the end of our time, but I would love to before we jump off 
do the same thing that we just did for solar panels, do that for the battery systems and the inverters. Maybe we can do that, um, you know, a little, uh, you know, more higher levels that we can, we can um, also get into the last conversation I want to hear your perspective on, which is the resiliency and the reliability of the United States energy grid um, and diving in there. So could we, what is that, what does that supply chain and that closed loop value chain look like for batteries from your perspective? Batteries right now are a tough one, right? Because the majority of batteries are lithium. Sure, there's some lead acid batteries out there for solar, but the majority of what people are using these days are lithium batteries. And as we all know, there's a whole process with lithium batteries and longevity and lifespan. Like I mentioned earlier, they're lasting 10 years and they're rating 70 to 70%. Now, there's some emerging technologies out there right now um, that are using uh, vadnium and stuff like that. that it's promising. And, and there's also some batteries that are actually using, um, it's almost like a, a hydroelectric battery that the batteries are getting filled up with the technology and, um, they're, they're growing and they're having that capacity and that capability. So batteries right now, they're in that complex capability and that complex, there could be issues with supply chain shortage right now. I'll, I'll reference Tesla right now to get a Tesla Powerwall right now. It's like a six to eight month waiting list. Um, if, if that's what we're using for installs, because they're having shortages. So um, now we don't use the Tesla Powerwall anymore, but we had it in our capability to install it. And that's it's, it's a lead time right now. So th- there is shortages in the battery industry, without a doubt. Um, briefly tapping on inverters. Inverters aren't that complex of a thing, but they are um, still relatively sourced and they're, they're capable to be able to do so. And we're not really having any supply chain issues with them or material manufacturing issues because the most part with inverters, right? You've got a, a big heat sink, which is usually aluminum and, and you've got other core components in them, but for the most part, it's relatively common, common items. Are, so I'm just going to go out on the, to the audience and say, we'll do a whole episode on battery supply chains. Cause I think that it's a really important conversation. And, um, the, the conversation around lithium cobalt and some of the, the more esoteric components in batteries that don't have the safest supply chains around the United States is it's you know at least a five hour conversation with with a variety of different perspectives and stakeholders and folks who are impacted by that conversation. So we will dive deeper in there on a separate episode. But on the inverter piece, um, just at a high level, what, what's what's in an inverter and are they are they sourced in the United States? What is that? What does that uh, supply chain look like? Because um, I know for electric motors, for example, you can't get small electric motors that are made in the United States. They, they, there is not a manufacturer who makes them. Tantalum capacitors, the same thing. An inverter strike me as another core electronic component that I'd be curious to uh, understand where those come from. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the biggest manufacturer right now that we use is from Israel. Um, they manufacture a lot of great inverter capability and products. Uh, Germany also has a really great, robust inverter manufacturing. And this is capacity. solar specific? Right. Yeah. Yeah, solar specific. Um, and, you know, base flies, right? You got a couple different converting circuits and then you've got a capacitor, right? And it converts that energy and it regulates it out and it smooths it out and it changes those electrical waves to match from, you know, DC to AC. Right? That's the basics, right? Super high level on it. But as far as, you know, capacitors, we're starting to have capacitor and manufacturing capability like that here in the U.S. They actually just broke ground on a massive facility in Arizona to be able to build these transistors and capacitors um, because, as we know right now, the auto manufacturing capability is hindered because they don't have access to this stuff right now. So, Are you talking changing. about the TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Factory, or is there another one that's being yeah. set up? Yeah, yeah, that big one, Taiwan. 
Cool. Uh, so thank you for clarifying all that. And now the, the conversation that I think is going to be an interesting one. I don't know how deep into it we'll have time to get, but you mentioned dropping a bomb over a location in Kansas and generating an EMP blast would take out the entire U.S. electrical grid or effectively take out the U.S. electrical grid. Uh, can you just kind of reiterate what you said there? And then if you're comfortable with it, could we go a little bit deeper and talk through um, you know, what that actually looks like in practice and what that means for the consumer? And not saying that this is yeah. going to happen. I'm not trying to you know, uh, fear monger or anything like this. Just want to take a where stuff comes from framework perspective to understanding how resilient and reliable our electric grid really is and why it's so important to as an individual, a business owner, an entrepreneur, or someone who even works at a company who has decision-making capacity to do something about these types of vulnerabilities, why it's important to think through, okay, what do we do if we can't depend on other people to provide for us anymore, or at least temporarily? Yeah. So, you know, the biggest thing is it can be anything, right? It could be a man-made disaster. It could be a solar flare, you know, of high enough capacity, right? If it builds up this electromagnetic wave in such a point in certain points of the country are more, you know, are junction points to the national grid, right? Energy that's produced in California might be sold in Kansas or it might be sold in Louisiana, right? The grid entirety is all connected, right? And it's all connected with, you know, smaller, large-scale grids, right? I could call them microgrids, but not really microgrids, multiple states, and then you've got a national grid that's all tied together for all of these power producing facilities across the country. And this power can get routed based off of where the needs at. They say, hey, we need power here. Or California doesn't have enough power right now. We're going to bring power from Texas or from Montana or Utah. And all of these flow on these exact same power lines, right? Sure, they're different utilities or different grids, but there's still this massive grid that encompasses everything. And if there's an EMP or anything like that, that damages these transformers, that that damage can just keep spreading and keep spreading and keep going. And we don't have enough transformers. We don't have enough transformer production capacity that if there was a large scale event like that, that would damage the national grid to be able to replace them all at once. And people don't realize how tightly woven across the US power is Power gets sold all over the country all day long. You know, there's power that's being sold from California at 6 p.m. California time to New York. And that power is going over there. And, and, and it's just back and forth. And if that national grid gets damaged, that whole process stops. If those transformers get damaged so that they can't transform the power to keep it flowing down the grid, you don't have that. And, and that's it's such a, it's a scary thought to think about. Knock on wood, thankfully it hasn't happened. There's been small blackouts that have happened, but we don't really think anything of it. We haven't had a national event like that. But it's possible to happen, and there's not really any protection there because we don't have, you know, that large scale capacity to produce these transformers and these these devices that enable that large scale movement of power from one side to the other of the country. Well, I was in Texas for the Texas Ice Apocalypse. I've mentioned that on the podcast before. We had a, a friend of mine named Mike Howard come on and talk about kind of the flip side of this conversation when it comes to large pipelines. He's he's one of the, the leading uh, folks in the world for building large pipelines uh, between different countries to move natural gas around and help lift people, lift people up and create human flourishing through cheap, reliable fossil fuels. But this conversation around, hey, we need to make sure that we have resiliency in case these large just-in-time systems fail is really freaking important. 
And I lived through the Texas yeah. apocalypse where we were, I think, 60, 68 seconds or something like this away from the Texas energy grid being offline for like a month. Um, if if the if the transformer failure propagation hadn't been stopped where it was stopped when it was stopped, which is both from a from a you know survivability and a human flourishing perspective, it's a little bit it's a little bit eye-opening, but it's also an opportunity for entrepreneurs, individuals, businesses to hedge themselves and take advantage if not take advantage in a negative way, but you know, expand, grow and, and create value in the face of that, either in preparation for that, for themselves, so that they're ready if something like this does happen. And also, Hey, are there opportunities to go and create businesses where we're helping create more reliable ecosystems around our supply chains um, in your community? Is there an opportunity for you to go and help your community create a more reliable and resilient infrastructure? Which is uh, it's an interesting interesting conversation to have when you realize some of these vulnerabilities. So what are what are some of the other you know failure modes that you um, that you've thought about for how how the grid might be vulnerable? You know, there's just so many of them, right? You got obviously large scale. You've got hacking, which is another one. Um, you know, we saw you know the, the the big colonial pipeline wasn't hacked in the aspect everyone thinks it was. It wasn't a oil wasn't flowing or gas wasn't flowing. It was hey. Um, we can't bill for this, so we shut it down, right? It was a hack of a financial system. It wasn't a hack of a, a uh, you know, the actual transmission mode. So, you know, there's just so many things out there, right? A, a semi-truck can drive off the road and run into a, a large-scale transformer for that community, and that entire community is down until they repair that place, right? If, especially if it's a rural place where there's not two different transformers, you know, transformer sites for that area, like anything right a lightning strike could happen and that community could be out of power for weeks if not months on a smaller level right so there's so many different like little things that can happen and just having that capacity to hedge and protect yourself against it is really important right and and i encourage people to go out there and look at it right look at if you live near a stream you got a stream in your backyard look at getting something with hydro uh if you've got the capacity to do some type of you know geothermal geoelectric do it if not, solar is a great option with batteries and designing, right? Because you never know what might happen, right? It could be something as simple as car ran off the road and hit this main transformer hub for your guys's, you know, district, and you're out of power for weeks. Um, it could be something large scale, it could be a storm, um, something like that. Just having that capability to truly be free, right, and, and protect yourself and your families, is, I think, was important. And then obviously you've got the financial benefit of it too. You're generating your own power. You're hedging against rising rates and you're hedging against inflation with today's dollars versus dollars on the road. Beautiful. Ivan, thank you so much for all of that information. We didn't even get into micronuclear reactors, which um, which I think is an interesting conversation. We'll have to have a, a follow-up conversation about that. But if you have a couple of billion dollars in a time machine to go five years in the future to go grab yourself a micronuclear reactor, that might solve your uh, your your locality's energy needs. So thank you so much. If you want to learn more about Ivan's work and maybe even work with Ivan and grab some of your own solar and uh, independence creating local energy production capability, Ivan, where can people go to learn more about you and potentially work with you? Yeah. So uh, look me up on LinkedIn, Ivan Gonick, only one there, or um, on our website, veteransolarx.com. That's our parent website. So we've got Veteran Solar AZ, Veteran Solar South Carolina. So Veteran Solar X or you know, LinkedIn, Facebook whatever we're out there but LinkedIn, what, if they want wonderful. to reach out to me directly 
Wonderful. And there is a lot of opportunity in building these systems and recognizing that where your stuff comes from can only be strengthened by asking these types of questions and investigating what options are out there for you to be freer, more independent, more resilient, more reliable, and more capable of seizing opportunities that come your way when the opportunity is ready to strike. Ivan, thank you so much for coming on today. Any last other requests for the audience. Otherwise, we will put your your contact info in the show notes. And we are extremely grateful for you coming on. Be prepared for anything that happens. Look out for your family, look out for your neighbors, because this is the best thing. If you're prepared, you can help others. And that's the best thing. So that's it. I appreciate you for having me on. It was a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Next Frontier podcast. If you'd like to dive deeper into our content, share our content, or subscribe to our newsletter to get our updates delivered directly to your inbox, go head on over to nextfrontierpodcast.com to subscribe.